Hey, we're coming down the Old Testament stretch. We've got three historical books, three minor prophets, and one major prophet left. We're now going to look at the last major prophet, Daniel. Throughout this Old Testament overview, I've mentioned a number of top ten Sunday school stories. I think I have two, maybe three left. I'm going to use them all up in the book of Daniel. Historically, Daniel is a young man carried off to Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem and Judah. Daniel means God is my judge. We're pretty sure he was of royal blood. In the prophecy of Isaiah to Hezekiah, when Hezekiah asked for 15 more years of life and then showed the people from Babylon all his treasures, Isaiah said, he'll carry off your descendants to Babylon. It's pretty likely Daniel was one of those descendants of Hezekiah. You'll also remember Isaiah said to Hezekiah, he'll make them eunuchs in his palace. I explained to my students, a eunuch is someone who cannot make a baby, and that it was a king's way of protecting his harem from his servants. There is no mention of a wife in the story of Daniel. We're also told he was a youth when he was taken. Nebuchadnezzar was a shrewd politician. He would take certain captives, give them preferential treatment, and try to win them over. Clearly, this is what happened to Daniel. We're also introduced to three of Daniel's close companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Nebuchadnezzar has certain youth picked out of these Judean captives. We're given this criteria. Physically, they were to be without defect and good-looking. By the way, that means pleasing in appearance. They were to be intelligent, both teachable and wise. And they were to have the ability to serve in the king's court. In other words, to be socially skilled. I suggest to my students, that's a great template for their own life. Keep yourself physically fit. Be teachable and growing to be sharper mentally. And develop social graces so you can be appropriate in any situation. Overall, these were some sharp teenage Judean captives. As part of winning them over, Nebuchadnezzar then did several other things for them. He taught them the Chaldean language. He put them on the Babylonian diet. He gave them the best education they had to offer. And he gave them new names. Let's talk about those names. In the case of Daniel and his three friends, each of them had something about the God of Israel in their name. We've learned Daniel was God is my judge. Their new names, Babylonian names, are each related to some false god in Babylon. My name, Timothy, Tamaotheos, means to honor God. This would be like having my name changed to honor Zeus. I mean, names are pretty big deals. The reaction of Daniel and his three friends to the new language, the new education, the new diet, and their new names is very interesting. Which do you think could be the most destructive? Having your name changed to a pagan name? Having your head filled with pagan knowledge? Having your mother tongue, the language the scriptures were written in, nudged over by a new language? Or a new diet? In the case of Daniel and his four friends, they push back on, of all things, the new diet. So why the diet thing? Why not eat the king's food and wine? The text tells us, Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the king's food. God had made specific commands about what his people were to eat in the Old Testament law, specifically in Leviticus. That was the standard Daniel and his three friends had to go on. God had never given specific prohibitions against things like languages, names, or education. 
but he had given them a specific diet. As you read this story, look at the courtesy and wisdom with which Daniel and his three friends handled this situation. They asked for a special diet. God grants favor to their steward who's caring for them so that he will give it a try. And after a period of testing, they excel. It is clear to the steward that God has favor on these young men. We're told when these young men get to exam time, when they're reviewed by the king for their progress, they're found to be ten times better than any of the other captives. We're also told, like Joseph, Daniel had a unique ability to understand visions and dreams. That would soon come in very handy. In chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Apparently, when he wakes up in the morning, he forgets what the dream was, though he's extremely troubled by it. He calls in all of his Chaldean wise guys to help him with the dream. I had this amazing dream. You tell me what it was and what it means. They said, great, king. You tell us the dream. We'll give you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says, not happening. You tell me both the dream and the interpretation. They look at him, shake their heads and go, dude, what do we look like? Mind readers? We're interpreters. Give us the dream and we'll interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar is deeply troubled. Apparently, he can't pull the dream up. So in a rage, he orders all the wise men of Babylon to be executed. When you're the most powerful king of the world, you can do that sort of thing. Unfortunately, Daniel and his three friends were wise men in training. His execution order also blanketed them. When Daniel hears about the execution order, he asks his steward if he can have a little time. He believes that he may be able to recall and interpret the king's dream. Immediately, Daniel and his three friends go to prayer. They hit their knees and ask God for the dream and the interpretation. God gives Daniel the same dream that night, and the next morning he's brought before the king. Daniel makes it clear, the wise men are right. Nobody but God could do what you ask, but I know that God Daniel then explains a dream of a statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. It reminds me of the Barbie dolls back when I was a kid. Super tall and scary skinny. I'll let you read about that statue, the four parts, what they were made of, and what happened to it. What happens to Daniel is, Nebuchadnezzar almost immediately makes him a high-ranking official in his kingdom, very similar to what Pharaoh did to Joseph back in the book of Genesis. Daniel is missing in Daniel chapter 3. This now high-ranking Babylonian official, perhaps, was out on Nebuchadnezzar business. We get a story about his three friends. Perhaps that statue dream went to Nebuchadnezzar's head because he builds this tall, skinny monument to himself and sets it out on the plain of Dura in Babylon. I mean, it's the exact same dimensions. On a special dedication day, Every citizen is commanded to bow low before this statue. When the band is struck up, that's exactly what happens. Except for there's three individuals who punctuate the landscape. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The three captives from Judah in Wise Man Training School. Are you ready for that top ten Sunday school story yet? Nebuchadnezzar hears about this and calls them in before him. Gentlemen, you must have not gotten my executive order, so I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to get a little band in here, strike it up, and you can just fall down in the direction of that statue out there in the plain of Dura. And just so you know it's at stake here, 
You'll be thrown into a fiery furnace if you don't. I'm guessing this is a God of Judah thing, but I want to suggest to you, there's no God out there that can deliver you from my hand. Are we clear on all this? Their response is this, King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us from your fiery furnace, but even if he should choose to not do so, we'll never bow the knee to that statue or serve your gods. Nebuchadnezzar is not used to hearing the word no. He orders the furnace to be bellowed seven times hotter than normal. And then he binds these three Judean captives in ropes. Men carry them to the pit and toss them into the fire. At the opening to the furnace, the men carrying them catch on fire and are burned to death. Then, stunned, Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace. There, standing in the furnace, are these three young Judean captives and a fourth person. Nebuchadnezzar cries out, Wasn't it three guys we threw bound into the midst of the fire? Look, I see four loosed and walking around in the middle of the fire, and one of these is like the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar summons them out of the fire, and when they come out, we're told there wasn't even the smell of smoke on their clothing. Nebuchadnezzar has a aha, wake up religious moment. He commands that going forward, anyone who speaks against the God of these three Judean captives will be torn limb from limb and their houses made a rubbish heap. He then elevates these three colleagues of Daniel to a higher place in his administration. In chapter 4, we learn that being the most powerful ruler on earth comes with pitfalls, and the biggest one is usually pride. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. He calls his dream guy, Daniel, in to interpret it. Daniel hears the dream and is very grieved in his heart. He knows it's about prideful Nebuchadnezzar. He gives Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation, which is a warning from God. Stop being prideful or you'll be cut down and put in your place. About a year after this dream, we're told Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the walls of his amazing palace. Perhaps just to himself, he sighs, Is this not Babylon the Great that I built with the power of my hands and for the glory of my majesty? Immediately, a voice comes from heaven saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you're toast. For the next seven years, Nebuchadnezzar had a mental illness. Look it up. It's called boanthropy. It's a person's mind derailing, so they think they're an animal and they act accordingly. He thinks he's a cow. But after seven years, God gives him enough sanity that he humbles himself, cries out to God. Chapter 4, verse 37 is a testimony of restored King Nebuchadnezzar. He says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Wow. In chapter 5, we fast forward. Daniel's now in his late 70s. Several Babylonian kings have come and gone, mostly with assassination and intrigue. Now the king is Belshazzar. Belshazzar, one night at a royal party, calls for the vessels of the Judean temple to be brought in, apparently the chalices of gold. He fills them up with booze and starts passing them around to his friends, wives, and concubines. As they're making a toast, suddenly a human hand, detached from the arm, appears and starts writing words on the wall of the palace. Apparently someone remembered Daniel, the dream interpreter for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's brought in. It was 
essentially three words. Daniel tells him, the first word means, your days are numbered. The second, you've been weighed in the balances and found to be lightweight. The third, God is giving your kingdom to the Medes and the Persians. That very night, Darius the Mede, along with the Persians, diverted the Euphrates River, and they literally walked into fortified Babylon under the river gates. Belshazzar was killed, and in one night, Babylon was done. Darius the Mede then made Daniel one of his top officials. Which brings us to our last Sunday school story, Daniel in the Lion's Den. Now mind you, this is 80-year-old Daniel, a Judean captive in the nation of Babylon, taken over by the Medes and Persians, and made the third highest in the cabinet, would cause a lot of other officials who'd been working their way up the company ladder to get upset. The rest of the Medo-Persian leaders are very jealous of him, so they decide to take him out. Unfortunately, they can't find any skeletons in Daniel's closet. The man has uncompromising integrity and has had it for over six decades. They realize the only way they can get him is if somehow they can find a way to trap him in his fidelity to his God. So they hatch a plot to get Darius to sign an order. No one in the kingdom can make a petition or prayer to any man or God other than Darius for 30 days. Not sure what Darius was thinking, but he signed the order. And in Medo-Persia, once an edict was signed by the king, it could not be rescinded. When Daniel hears about this edict, he continues to do what he's always done. Three times a day, he go to his prayer room, face Jerusalem, and pray to his God, the God of Israel. Of course, the officials immediately caught him in the act and dragged him to Darius for trial. Darius immediately knows he's been had. This is one of his best men, and he's been painted into a corner. He's trapped. We're told he spends the entire night trying to figure out how to get Daniel off the hook. But these same officials remind him, You're trapped, king. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. It can't be rescinded. The penalty attached to this 30-day moratorium on prayer was to be thrown into the lion's den. Darius finally caves, but tells Daniel this, Your God, Daniel, whom you continually serve, he'll be able to deliver you. That's amazing. And God does deliver Daniel. The lion's den was a pit. These lions were kept at near starvation. Daniel's thrown down among these kitties, and Darius goes back to the palace. We're told he spent a sleepless night fasting for Daniel. At dawn's first light, he hurries back to the lion's den and calls into the pit, Daniel, has your God whom you continually served been able to deliver you from the lions? From the pity, hears Daniel's voice. O king, live forever. An angel came and shut the lion's mouths, perhaps adding, Have you ever used a lion's mane for a pillow? I've never had a better sleep. The king brought him out of the pit and immediately ordered his accusers and their families to be thrown in there. We're told as a side note, they had not hit the bottom of the den before these hungry lions tore them limb from limb. Darius then makes another decree, the law of the Medes and the Persians. This one says, In all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. Taken captive as a teenager, he spends 60 or 70 years of complete fidelity to the God of Judah, 
He's trusted and used in the cabinets of various kings and his God-given skills for visions and dreams and their interpretation has guided the most powerful rulers on earth. The story of Daniel in chapters 1 through 6 set us up for chapters 7 through 12. For there, in these chapters, God gives this faithful, dream-interpreting man several dreams and visions of the future of human history that are, in a word, stunning. And we'll look at those dreams and visions of Daniel in our next word picture.